now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. My name is John Wood Jr. I'm a national ambassador with an organization called Braver Angels, which happens to be the largest grassroots bipartisan organization in America dedicated to the work of political depolarization, basically helping us reestablish relationship with each other across political, but also racial and other pertinent divides in American life. A little while ago, I wrote an essay that appeared in Persuasion called Remember Martin Luther King Jr. And in that work, I illustrate the contrast between the philosophy of nonviolence as taught and practiced by Martin Luther King Jr., Baird Rustin, and leaders and members of the nonviolent movement of the 1960s, and the ideology of anti-racism as articulated and explained by Ibram X. Kendi and others. In the essay, I try to make the point that nonviolence seeks to engage the whole person in his or her totality on the other side of difficult questions of justice, prejudice, and politics. And it anchors that engagement through the root of what Dr. King termed agape love, but what you could also term goodwill that the moral strength of nonviolence lies in the fact that it seeks to win the opponent over and to reintroduce the enemy in a social context to the shared fabric of community, what Dr. King would have termed the beloved community, a place where we arrive through reconciliation and challenging one another with truth through a spirit of goodwill. I draw a contrast in that piece between nonviolence and anti-racism because while anti-racism and nonviolence are in some respects linked in history, you can look at them both as being a part of the Black freedom tradition, if you will, the overarching historic struggle for equal rights, equal opportunity, and for the advancement of the African-American community. While nonviolence and anti-racism stand in some sense adjacent in that history, while anti-racism in some respects is viewed as perhaps continuing the work of the civil rights movement in our current day, anti-racism tends to have the unfortunate effect of reducing human beings to stereotypes. When we think of, in this case, white people as being the inheritors of a legacy of systemic racism, of white supremacy in the anti-racist analysis, and that the institutions of American society are themselves defined by these qualities. The anti-racism frame seems to require us to engage our fellow human beings across this color divide in a way that makes them more caricatures of themselves but that gives us a very half-true or untrue understanding of who human beings are on the other side of these questions. Nonviolence, I argue, in some respects has been forgotten and displaced by the surge of anti-racism, but it is the more complete understanding of human nature. We have to revive this philosophy in order to accomplish in our own time what anti-racism claims to so that we may prevent a moral and philosophical regression from taking greater hold 
as a consequence of some of the shortcomings of this popular ideological perspective. Through the philosophy of nonviolence, the revival of the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. so as to achieve the ultimate ends of a more equitable, a more equal society, a society that can find its greater expression in what King called the beloved community. And so I hope that folks get a chance to read the essay and I hope that you take something from it. John Wood Jr.'s piece called Remember Martin Luther King Jr. was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. Well, it's my real, real pleasure to have Jonathan Hyde on the podcast today. Jonathan is the Professor of Ethical Leadership at the Stern School of Business at New York University. Jonathan is also a member of the Persuasion Board of Advisors. He is a wonderful writer whose book, Righteous Mind, has really, to me, was my introduction to the field of moral psychology and has changed my way of thinking about the world. He also has a very influential and interesting book, The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, which is much more about some of the cultural developments in the United States that I've been thinking about a good bit in the last months and years. And we really cover both aspects of his work in this conversation and think a little bit about how the great awakening or how the rise of wokeness is likely to play out in the next years and decades. So I think whether you're interested in questions of psychology and questions of human nature or in some of the strange terrain of culture war that has been going on in the United States for these past years, this conversation is going to be really helpful and insightful to you. Jonathan Hyde, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. I love the podcast. I'm so happy to be invited. Well, listen, it's an honor to have you on. You know, I first came to your work through The Righteous Mind, which I read one beautiful summer in my garden in Italy. So I have a vivid memory, as you do sometimes, of books you read. Oddly, I sort of, I see the landscape in front of my family's place in Italy when I think of you and the book. And I have to say that it shamed me a little bit because, you know, I'm somebody who'd done history as an undergrad and then political science and political philosophy and a lot of different disciplines, but I'd always been quite skeptical of psychology, social psychology, certainly evolutionary biology, as things that might be helpful in us understanding the social world and the political world. And I think your book makes a very convincing case for why we need to think about some of those things and some aspects of our nature to make sense of what the world looks like. So what drove you to look at the world through that prism? And what do you think we stand to gain from doing that? Mm. Ever since I was a kid, I've always loved figuring out how things work. And I get an enormous pleasure when something sort of mentally snaps into place. And so when I was in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, I didn't really identify with any subdiscipline of psychology. Early on, I began studying morality. At the time, moral psychology was mostly about developmental psychology. It was Lawrence Kohlberg and how kids develop their ability to think about justice. Hmm. And it was Carol Gilligan. And she said, no, it's not about justice. It's about empathy or compassion or relationships. And that's what the debate was when I started grad school in 1987. But I always liked to read widely. And so when I took a course from Alan Fisk, a really great cultural psychologist, I first read ethnographies, you know, full-length descriptions of non-Western culture's practices around, you know, marriage or food or sex or anything. And I began seeing, wow, there's all these similarities, like things I read in the Hebrew Bible, like the book of Leviticus about purity and sanctity. And actually, you see a lot of those practices in other cultures, and there's something universal going on here. 
So I was really turned on by making connections between sort of moral psychology and development along with anthropology, sociology. I first read Emil Durkheim. I first read any sociology in graduate school. And then history, reading about ancient Rome and ancient Greece and how they had all kinds of purity rules. So I've always found it just a thrill to be a social scientist, meaning, you know, we're interested in social phenomena and to understand them, you can't just use one lens. Psychology is relevant to all, but it's almost never sufficient. And so what is it that you discovered that we do have in common? And how does that sort of gel with some of the things that are specific about us? So, you know, one of the books that people have been reading in the last year and we might discuss in the podcast sometime, is this book called The Weirdest People in the World, which shows that actually psychologists for a very long time have studied really weird people, should say Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So, you know, 19-year-old, 20-year-olds, undergrads at the University of Pennsylvania, at NYU, where you are now, at Johns Hopkins, where I am. You know, you get these people in the lab, you, you give them a bunch of tests, and you deduce things about human nature. But it turns out, But there's things about living particularly in a modern, rich, industrialized society that makes people very different from what you might get if you speak to people in a village in Asia or in Africa. And so how do you square those two things? What is it about human nature yeah. that's universal and what is it that's a specific artifact of the kind of environment in which we all live? Great. That's exactly the puzzle that I was working on in graduate school and that for my whole career, which is... Ever since I read Richard Dawkins in college, it just blew my mind that with a few simple principles, you can understand the rich diversity of the biological world. And so I've always felt that evolution has a lot to tell us. But again, it's never sufficient because we're also cultural creatures. And that's what's so great about Joe Henrik's work. So Joe Henrik, the author of The Weirdest People in the World, is just brilliant at showing how we evolved to be cultural creatures. And then we have this whole second strand of evolution. Our DNA evolves, but so does our culture. And the two interweave. And I love that sort of thinking. So what really hit me in grad school was, first, we're all human beings. We all have the same evolutionary heritage. When I would read about purity and pollution practices on an island in Polynesia and see that they were similar to what the ancient Israelites were doing, you know, you got to say like, wow, there's something about the human mind that structures this. But then you also have to say, at the same time, cultures can diverge. And as Henrik has shown, even in the West, huge divergence just in the last 500 years compared to even how Westerners were a thousand years ago. So that's what I really enjoy doing is telling a story that gets at both the universality and the variation. So a lot of people use the metaphor of language because obviously all humans have language and languages have many similarities, but also there are all kinds of switches. Like, do you put the verb at the end or the beginning? And so a lot of people have tried to say, well, you know, morality is like language, everybody's got it, but we have different grammars. But I came to think that a better metaphor is taste or food or cuisine. It starts off really simple. We all have the same five taste receptors on our tongue. That is sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and umami, which is kind of a meat product. We all have the same five taste receptors, but we grow up in a culture that feeds us different cuisines, and then we come to like different sets of tastes. And then there's all the olfactory stuff, which is even more important. And so as I began to wrestle with how do you square the circle or reconcile the obvious similarity with the obvious difference, I began to use that metaphor. And based on the work of my postdoc supervisor, Richard Schwader, I took some of his theories and made them more evolutionary and developed what we call moral foundations theory, which is that just as our tongues were shaped by what our ancestors ate, 
So, you know, as primates, we love fruit and we have sweet and sour receptors that guide us to ripe fruit. That's why we have them. Dogs don't have them. You know, you try to give something sweet to your dog. He doesn't like it. You say, well, this is delicious. Why don't you like it? Because they didn't evolve to eat fruit. They only evolved to eat meat. And in the same way, humans have these five, there's many more than that, but five main ones that we began talking about. So care, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And I think there's also liberty and property. There's a few others. But the five that we first talked about are the the most obvious taste receptors for understanding especially political divisions. And this is set out really convincingly in the writer's mind. But the way I understand it, right, I'm trying to sort of process this metaphor. So we all have the same basic taste receptors. And there may be, just as dogs don't appreciate fruit in the same way because they don't have a receptor for it, you know, there may be things that are outside of our repertoire as humans. And there are ways in which all of those things speak to us, right? Perhaps there's some tastes that we just simply don't know at all. But the basic distinction is that if you grow up in a culture in which you barely ever eat spicy food and you're just not used to it, and then suddenly you're exposed to spicy food, you know, you may not like it because it's not something that you sort of have come to appreciate in the same way. And so when you think about our moral foundations, in a similar way, we all have a capacity to think through the world, through these basic categories of fairness, of sanctity, of equality, but different cultures put different sets of emphases on each of those. And so that's what sort of delineates between them. Now, tell us a little bit about those differences that you see across culture. I understand that one thing is that in sort of weird societies, in more modern and industrialized societies, we tend to give relatively less emphasis on sanctity and relatively more emphasis on things like fairness or equality. Is that broadly right? And how can it help to explain the world? No, that's absolutely right. So the metaphor here is that these are foundations. So you don't live on the foundations of your house, you live in the house, but the house was built on certain foundations. And in the same way, modern Western morality is built especially on foundations of care and fairness. So I think George Lakoff, in one of his books, he says something like, liberal morality is all about empathy. And you see this, if you look at speeches, you can usually tell whether they're on the left or the right. If they talk a lot about fairness and compassion for the poor, and they talk a lot about fairness as a quality, So you would build up all kinds of concepts on the left, let's say, like fairness on the left is often equality, including equality of outcomes. Whereas on the right, so everybody talks about fairness, but it's really clear that on the right, they generally mean proportionality. That is something like the law of karma. So on the right, there's much more, you know, do the crime, do the time, much more an emphasis on punishment for free riders or shirkers. Now, everyone's hypocritical and everybody likes to point to the places where the other side, they say they care about this, but then they don't in this place. But if you look at political rhetoric, generally speaking, you'll find that those on the left are based much more on protecting individuals from harm and fairness, especially fairness as a quality. Now, when you look around the world, because you gave the example of things that seem outside of our understanding, what you generally find is that the normal human society is built on all of these foundations. It will have all kinds of stuff to regulate the body. Almost every society has religion and religious practices have a lot about how do you prepare to contact God or the sacred? And it usually involves bathing, physically cleansing. If you've just had sex or you've just defecated, you should not go into the temple. This really blew my mind when I read the Quran. I read the laws of Manu in Hinduism. I read a lot of ethnographies of societies before contact with Western civilization. 
And they almost always have this purity stuff. Now, you know, I'm an atheist Jew. I'm raised in the suburbs of New York City. I wasn't exposed to any of this stuff. But here's the cool thing. Just as we can read Homer and we can understand it, even though we don't live in an honor culture, we may not get all the nuances, but we can understand an honor culture if the author is great. And we can understand people talking about sanctity and purity because we have the taste receptor, even though it's not really used much. So this, to me, is one of the really fun things about moral psychology is you, you, it's something like, like traveling around the world. You, you, you try to make sense of other people's moral worlds. So we've talked a little bit about the difference between modern industrialized societies and more traditional societies, but you also think that this really helps to explain the difference between the left and right in Europe or liberals and conservatives in the United States. What is some of the empirical research on that? How do we know that the conservatives, even within the United States, put relatively more emphasis on sanctity and liberals put relatively more emphasis on equality and so on? Yeah. So the way I got into this, my dissertation was done in Brazil and the United States across social classes within each country. And it turned out that actually social class mattered more than country because if you're educated in Brazil versus the U.S., you're not that different, but you're actually very different from people in the lower class in your own country. There's a great chart in Joe Hendricks' book where he asks people this has become a little party trick of mine to complete the sentence, I am, in 10 different ways. And it turns out that, you know, probably a lot of listeners to this would say, I'm curious, I'm liberal, I'm conservative, I'm whatever your job is. Whereas people in more traditional societies would say, you know, I'm the son of so-and-so, I'm the father of so-and-so, I'm, you know, much more relational kind of answers. Now, in the United States, if you ask college students, about 80% of the answers refer to their qualities or their professions or things that they've sort of chosen to some extent in life. About 20% are sort of relational attributes like that. When you ask a laborer in Nairobi, about 20% are their own qualities, about 80% are their relationships. But when you ask a university student, a college student in Nairobi, the answers are very, very similar to those of American college students. So that, I think, is one of those indications both that this is as much a class as a cultural distinction and mixtures of how many people have the education and so on in the United States versus Kenya, for example, but also I think an argument for why it's universal, also an argument for why we shouldn't think that this is a difference that will persist 100 years from now necessarily, because if Kenya manages to develop and so on, probably a lot more Kenyans 100 years from now will be quite similar to Americans on many of those things. Yes, that's right. But even 100 years from now, we'll still find the difference. And so I'll try to explain why I think that's the case. So my original work was done across cultures and social classes. And especially when I started working in India, when I was a postdoc with Schwader, I spent three months in Bhubaneswar, India on the East Coast. And so all of my work originally was how nations and cultures vary. But in the late 90s, political polarization began to really increase in the United States. And we had beginning of the 80s, we had sort of the rise of the religious right. And I was very much on the left. And I just got interested in how this growing culture war in the 90s, and especially in the early 2000s, how the left and the right, it it really was analogous to what I was seeing in sort of weird cultures versus non-weird cultures. So there's a really good book, David Goodhart, Somewheres versus Anywheres. And it's sort of what you were saying, that most people are somewheres. They are rooted someplace, they have ties, and they define themselves in terms of those ties. But there's something about moving around and getting education 
that sort of rips all those roots out and you become this like, you know, almost billiard ball that can move around without being tied in. My former colleague at uh, University of Virginia, Shige Oishi, found that students who simply had moved a couple times were much weirder or individualistic than students who had never moved before they came to UVA. So mm. mobility changes our minds and changes our cultures. Anyway, so I began looking at how left and right was actually like different cultures. By 2004, we had different U.S. constitutions, different climate science textbooks, different history books. So I began looking at that. And originally, my hope was to actually help Democrats stop losing so much after the 2004, you know, after John Kerry lost when I thought he should have won. And one of the principles here is that the normal or default state of human minds and cultures is much more like those laborers in Nairobi, like, you know, the people I was working with in India. You have to really see people like us, well-educated Westerners and now increasingly Easterners as well, as the exception that needs explaining. And that's what Joe Henrik's book is about. We also have very direct proof. You asked, how do we know that left and right are this way? Well, first, we have data from hundreds of thousands of people on multiple studies. Uh, if you go to yourmorals.org, we put up a lot of surveys there. And with lots of different measures, we find that people who self-describe as liberal or left are different from those who describe as conservative on the right. And especially, it's the big difference is in loyalty, authority, and sanctity. It's those three foundations, which American conservatives or British conservatives will endorse, but American or British or whatever progressives give very low ratings. And then this really cool study, there was a great graduate student at UVA, Thomas Talhelm. He's now at a Chicago Booth. He came to me with this idea. He was working in China. He thought that actually liberals or people on the left, well, it's hard to say what the left is in China exactly, but that um, liberals think more weird because Henrik's weird paper had come out by this time. Uh, and so we collected data on left and right in China and America using some of the measures that Henrik and cultural psychologists do. And sure enough, we found that conservatives are less weird. If you're on the left in whatever country, you are more weird. And that makes it harder to win elections because you don't understand how most people think. This to me is certainly true about a lot of politics, especially on the left, that you sometimes get the sense that it's driven by what, according to that very interesting study, Hidden Tribes, which I had a podcast oh, I on to go back to that catalog, the tribe of progressive activists is about 8% of the population. They really, I think, have sometimes trouble sort of understanding how people relate to politics, how they talk about things, how they process what they're saying. But I have one thing that I've struggled with in what you just said, which is that I don't know whether we are very good at capturing different notions of sanctity in a fair way. And when I look at a lot of the left today, it doesn't strike me that it has less of a sense of sanctity or less of a fear of moral pollution or less of a sense of, you know, we care about this, not because of the impact, not because of the amount of consequences, but because this sullies us and we have to make sure that we're not sullied in that kind of way. Now, it depends on what kind of things you talk about. I mean, here's one example that I think about. And I come more from the left, so I want to preface this by saying one of these bothers me more than the other, right? I think my sanctity detectors go off more on one of these things than the other. So I'm not trying to say that they're morally equivalent. But when the right talks about voter fraud, and I'm not talking about the crazy conspiracy theories of Donald Trump or whatever, right? but when we talk about, you know, we don't really ask people for their ID, and so in theory, somebody could vote who isn't really allowed to vote, it strikes me that we have a disagreement here about whether we care about this consequentially or we care about this as a question of moral sanctity, right? In terms of 
The consequences, I think every political science study is pretty persuasive that that's a couple dozen people at most who do that in every election and it doesn't particularly matter. It doesn't affect the outcome. So who cares, right? But what people on the right might be saying is, well, but hang on a second, I care because only United States citizens should be allowed to vote. And it tarnishes the whole process when some people go and vote and they're not eligible to do that and we don't stop them from doing it. You can talk to me as much as you want about it doesn't sway the outcome of the election. This is wrong and you should care. This is a sanctity argument, right? Now, I think in similar ways, and again, I'm not saying that the two underlying offenses are morally equivalent, you have some of the same things on the left when there's sort of, you know, one person on a college campus who sprays a racial slur on a wall or something like that, right? I think there might be some people on the right whose moral sanctity isn't triggered on this, who say, well, it's one asshole who did this, and obviously that's bad, and we should punish them if they get caught, but come on, you know, it's one guy, who cares? Whereas I think a lot of people on the left have a sanctity response. They say, no, we want to be a space that is free of racism, that is free of that kind of thing, and so we should care about it. And if you say, you know, come on, like how bad is one word spray on a wall somewhere, we'll wash it off and get on with it, you're missing the point. So the question I'm putting to you is, is it really that the left and the right have different amounts of caring about sanctity, or is it that different sets of things trigger the sanctity response? Yes. So the first thing to note is that the reasons why we make a judgment and the words we use to justify it are not closely connected. So people might feel funny about something and then they struggle to explain it. So this is found in many parts of psychology, most vividly in Michael Gazzaniga's split brain studies. If only the right cortex gets something, the left cortex will struggle to make up a story. So that's the first thing. So the fact that the right might use sanctity arguments about voting doesn't mean that it's truly a sanctity issue for them. Generally speaking, the more you expand the franchise, it's going to be better for the left. And so the right is off trying to block that. Second thing is we all have purity and sanctity taste buds. And my claim is just that the right generally builds on it more than the left does. What's really cool to me is that there is this American civil religion and maybe we'll get to Biden later, but he really did a good job invoking that in his inaugural address. So everyone has the ability to treat you know, the founding documents as sacred or certain ideas as sacred. And I remember talking with people, I think it was in Brazil, about buying votes, because in many countries, politicians can kind of buy votes. And if you talk to Americans and say, you know, what if somebody offered you $1,000 for your vote, would you do it? And like, people are horrified. Like, it's a horrifying thought, because in America, the vote really has been invested with sacredness. Whereas I forget what country it was, people didn't have that feeling said, yeah, sure, $1,000. Of course I would. So I do agree with you that a lot of our thinking on left and right does involve sanctity, purity, inviolability. I do definitely agree with that. And then the third point I would make about this is that you see the absence of sanctity thinking, especially in sort of center-left and libertarian circles. In fact, we've got all kinds of data. Libertarians are the most rational, least emotional, least amount of magical thinking, you know, very low on sanctity and purity stuff. But it's especially on the center-left that you have more like a utilitarian orientation towards ethics. And on the far-left, yes, the far left and the far right, you get much more of this seemingly magical thinking. And that's why, I imagine we'll get to this, you've got a certain kind of a liberalism on the right, which has been very much on display recently, but you have a different kind of illiberalism on the left. And I think your example of a racial slur or a swastika painted somewhere on a campus 
many would treat that as it's been desecrated. Now we have to purify. So I do agree with you on that example. Everyone's got it, but the degree to which they build their morality on it is different and they'll sort of construct it out of slightly different materials. Yeah, that's a very interesting explanation and very convincing to me. One other thing that I want to hit on about that side of your work before we get into some of the more contemporary political concerns is the question about how our human nature pushes us towards groupishness and how we should deal with that. This is a question that I've been struggling with a lot as I'm writing a book about some of these questions. And it was, I think, influential in pushing me in a direction I didn't expect. So, you know, growing up like you Jewish, but in Germany, the idea of patriotism and nationalism has always been deeply anathema to me. And I, in many ways, thought that the right response to the most horrible episodes in history, including the Holocaust, but lots of others, including the genocide in Rwanda and so on, was to try and overcome any kind of attachment to groups, right? That the best way of dealing with that is to be very, very skeptical of organized groups of any form, to try perhaps to be a kind of cosmopolitan who cares about people everywhere in the world, whoever they might be to the same extent. And A, there's a very nice line in your book where you talk about how sort of everybody at UVA at a certain point had coexist stickers on the bumper, but you realized that actually they were the coexist tribe, they were the tribe of people who are tolerant and they dislike people who are not tolerant in exactly the way that other tribes dislike each other. Uh, but more broadly, I think your book makes an argument that sort of being groupish is so deeply baked into human psychology that the right response is not to try and overcome that instinct. It is to think about what kind of groups are least likely to wreak havoc, what kind of groups are most likely to keep the darkest instincts of our human nature in check and, and allow us to maximize some of the good things that come from groups, like our amazing ability to cooperate as a human species. So make that argument for us, because I'm still chewing on it. Yeah. So it's interesting the degree to which human nature has been controversial in the social sciences, because a lot of people fear reductionism, they celebrate diversity and difference. And I think a key to reconciling all of this is to say that human nature is deeply contingent. So I never say hardwired. I really don't like that image of something hardwired. Rather, we have predispositions. The mind is sort of pre-structured, but it can change during development. And more importantly, we have all kinds of psychological mechanisms that only come out under certain circumstances. So it's not that we are hardwired to be tribal and therefore we're always tribal, that's not true at all. Even if you look at tribes or pre-contact societies, they're really interested in getting to know other groups and in exploring and trading and developing trade networks. So a useful metaphor here is the slime mold. It can exist as individual cells, but when things get really dry or there's a, you know, the danger of death, they all come together. Some of them form a stalk that then releases spores that then go reproduce. And that's a good metaphor for human tribalism or sectarianism, which is we're very good at doing every man for himself or being individuals and exploring and developing ourselves. But when a threat happens, boy, do we come together. And that's what I wrote about in The Righteous Mind. 9-11, I mean, my God, that, again, I was always on the left. Now I'm a center, center-left kind of person, but I was very much on the left and prone to, you know, be suspicious of nationalism. But when 9-11 happened, there was like far back on my head, there was a panel that said, in case of foreign attack, break glass and take out 
this certain kind of nationalism. And so that's part of the way that I think about human nature is that it gives us all these mechanisms. And then some cultures, especially if you grow up with gangs, you have a really strong sense of us versus them. If you grew up during wartime, you have a strong sense of us versus them. If you grew up during peacetime, as I did, you don't have that strong sense, but it can be activated by the environment. And I think what we see is a left-right split and how readily that happens. So to understand left versus right psychology, for the left, I always just think of John Lennon's song, Imagine. You know, imagine there's no countries, you know, no religions, nothing to kill or die for. Also, no property is another verse. But there is a dream on the left of let's erase all the walls and just all be together as one. And that's a beautiful dream. But people on the right think it's naive. It would never happen. They're more rooted. And there are positive forms of nationalism. I think you and I came down really on the same kind of view. And a lot of other people, like around 2016, 2017, after the rise of populism, I have a whole collection of essays, Larry Summers, David Brooks, Martin Wolf, I think, somebody in the FT, saying, no, wait a second, you know, don't get rid of patriotism and nationalism, but there are forms where you can love your country that are very positive. And so German nationalism 70 years ago was structured as we love our country and all the others are threats, we're going to take them over. But American patriotism and American exceptionalism is, hey, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. We stand for democracy. Uh, So depending on how the nationalism is constructed, it can be a very positive force. There's also a basic finding in social psychology that when you do things to divide us versus them, you get a big increase in love of the in-group and only a small increase in hate of the out-group. So sports, for example, sports rivalries are actually very positive because Yankees fans will say they hate the Red Sox. It's not very deep, but then their love of the team and of their fellow fans is really big. So I think there are positive forms of patriotism and nationalism, and the left would be doing itself a disservice to just say no, no to that, you know, all humankind is one. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, I'm ambivalent about nationalism and patriotism still. You know, the way that I talked about it in my last book is as the sort of half-domesticated animal that can do tremendous work for us, that can sustain a welfare state, that can sustain the fact that somebody sitting in Maine can sympathize in a special way with somebody sitting in San Diego, even though they may have a different gender and race and religion. And that, I think, is a really positive and amazing thing. But, you know, I don't distinguish between patriotism and nationalism. Some people say patriotism is a wonderful thing and has all these great things. I mean, nationalism is sort of Trump and all the terrible things. And I think sort of as two different ideal types, I agree with that. I think there's a positive face of it and a negative face of it. But the step from one to the other, I think, is always very small. And so for me, it's a question of an ongoing process of trying to domesticate this half-domesticated beast. And it can always go wrong, but it's better than the alternatives because we do have this instinct towards groupishness. You know, we have an instinct towards forming groups when discriminating in favor of the in-group and punishing the out-group. And, you know, when I look at the kind of options for the cultural expression of that we have at the moment... The one that seems to me least pernicious is an inclusive patriotism or an inclusive nationalism, as opposed to either a celebration of groups at the subnational level, which I think is part of a pluralist democracy, of course, but when that becomes the only thing, creates all kinds of problems for societies, or the attempt to just tamper down all forms of groupishness, which I think will just allow the worst kinds of people to come in and sweep in and and exploit it. But but how do you think about that? I mean, you know, if we say, look, groups can have this positive result. They can make people do these amazing things for the in-group. How should people ideally split their allegiances 
in a pluralistic democratic society across the family, the town, the co-religionists, the people who share their ethnicity, the country as a whole. Uh, well, so first, it's not that there's a fixed amount of identification, and if you give more to your country, you're going to give less to something else. So you have to look at it in a, in a more dynamic way. And, you know, when your country needs you or your country's been attacked, then that becomes the salient identity. It's really interesting to me that anybody who remembers World War II or grew up in the aftermath and was raised by people who remember it, at least in the United States and Britain and, and other countries, has a kind of patriotism, sort of love of country that I think is generally very positive. It was yoked to a moral ideal of fighting evil. And it really stayed with people for life. And when you look at 20th century liberals, you find this very positive form of patriotism. This morning, I reread the transcript of Biden's inaugural address, and he really comes across as a 20th century patriot. You know, John F. Kennedy was this way. But as your own work shows, younger generations, well, they didn't grow up in a time when democracies were great and they worked and they were fighting evil. They've seen dysfunctional democracies. So we have seen a decline of respect for democracy. And if you've been raised in that way, it makes sense that you wouldn't love your country as much. I do think distinctions between patriotism and nationalism actually are helpful. You know, patriotism is love of country. And people who say you shouldn't love your country, well, you know, a rejoinder that some people make is, well, look, I love my wife because she's my wife. That doesn't mean I think she's better than all other wives or sh should conquer all other wives. Like, I am tied to my wife. And in the same way, I am tied to this country. I am so grateful for what this country did, you know, took in my grandparents from Poland and Russia, took in my wife's parents from Korea. So I love my country. And that has zero negative ramifications. Nationalism, then you have to say, well, there can be positive forms, but to think that your nation is great in conflict with or in comparison to other nations. So I think, you know, they overlap, but I think there are shades of meaning. And if we focus on patriotism, I think that's where I think those on the left who reject it are, I think, making a moral mistake and a strategic mistake electorally. Yeah. So I think on the conceptual difference between patriotism and nationalism, ultimately, I don't think that there's a natural way of selecting terms. It's not a right or wrong way. I think there's an advantage in drawing the stark distinction between the two, which is that it makes it easier to argue for a version of it that has the positive elements and against a version of it that has the negative elements. The reason why I don't choose to is that I think it also makes it harder to see how those two things are empirically connected, that there will always be the danger of one bleeding into the other, and that's something we should be aware of, even as we defend it. But I think there's no objective determination of which of those strategies is right. It's just a question about which point you want to emphasize. Well, you know, this morning, preparing to talk with you, and after I read the transcript of Biden, I went back and reread the transcript of Trump's inaugural address from 2017, because he starts off, it's kind of funny to read it. I'll just read the beginning. He starts off, we, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Together, we will determine the course of America and the world for many years to come. We'll face challenges, we'll confront hardships, but we will get the job done. Every four years, we gather on these steps to carry out the orderly and peaceful transfer of power, and we're grateful to President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama for their gracious aid, et cetera, et cetera. So that could have been in Biden's address. Like, that was, he starts off in a very sort of, you know, generic American way. But then, like, the next sentence, I think it is, he pivots to populism. And he says, today's ceremony, however, has a very special meaning because today we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another. We're transferring power from Washington, D.C. and giving it back to you, the people. 
for too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards. And he goes into the whole thing. The elites are corrupt. You're the real Americans. I am here to take power from those evil people who are running things and give it to you, the people. And so realizing what happened with the QAnon conspiracy and these beliefs, you know, you can trace it right back to Trump's inaugural. And the point is, Biden has a lot of patriotism, a lot of love of country, and zero negativity, zero conflict, whereas Trump is nationalism. It's blood and soil nationalism. And when you have blood and soil nationalism, that is always exclusive, because people who don't share the blood, they're out. They're the bad people. So I think reading the two inaugural addresses, Biden is patriotism, Trump is nationalism. Substantively, I agree with you whether those two terms are best to describe it, I don't know, but it does make a point, I think, persuasively. Let's speak about Biden, about his inaugural address, but also about his general stance over the last couple of years. He has put a lot of emphasis on the aspiration and the idea of unity. He has tried to signal to people who might have voted for Donald Trump that he doesn't regard them as enemies or that he doesn't regard them as bad human beings, even though he regards Donald Trump as a bad human being. First of all, I think, what's the appeal of that that a lot of people miss? Because I'm really interested in the fact that every opinion writer, every smart commentator, etc., they all wrote Biden off completely in 2019, you know. The Democratic Party is not going to go for this old fuddy-duddy who talks about harmony and so on. Well, they were wrong about Democratic primary voters. And they were wrong, of course, about the United States population as a whole. So what makes that appealing? And how much of an impact can it have, though? Do you think that Biden's rhetorical stance, if he sticks to it smartly, can actually help to reconcile Americans to some extent, take some of the people from the Trumpist coalition and sort of make them feel less beleaguered, make them feel less scared for the American future and tamp down the temperature of American politics? Or do you think that's a fool's errand, that in the end, the people who are trying to say the Democrats are attacking our sacred values, playing on those receptors of sanctity and so on, that they're going to always find something that they can exploit. Yeah. So I'm now a very big fan of Joe Biden. I, you know, I had written him off too. And so a couple of things to keep in mind here to judge this. The first is let's always keep in mind the Hidden Tribes report. It's just so useful. And so listeners, if you go to hiddentribes.us, you'll get the report. They surveyed, I don't know, eight or 10,000 Americans, I forget how many. And they did a cluster analysis. They gave them all kinds of attitude objects. Actually, they gave them the Moral Foundations questionnaire. So they actually have scores on liberty, you know, loyalty, authority, sanctity. And then they did, a, I think it was a cluster analysis, or I forget what, but a cluster analysis to find out what clumps of voters are there, you know, in a multidimensional space. And they found seven clusters, they say. And this is the way I like to think about it. The one on the far right is they call devoted conservatives. And that's the whitest of all the groups. And it's also the one they have the most authoritarian psychology. So a lot of authoritarians are in that thing. That's 6%. That's on the far right. Uh, but the second whitest of all the groups is the far left, which is the progressive activists. They're 8% of the American population. And after this report came out, a number of people, including David Brooks, I think he had a headline, The Rich White Civil War, because actually, you know, the 6% on the far right and the 8% on the far left, they're only a small part of the population, but boy, are they loud. And since all journalists are on Twitter and are hooked into social media, so they don't see an even cross-section of America, they see especially these extremes. 
And so you'd think, you know, Biden will never appeal to the left because what you're hearing from is the progressive activists. But one of the big takeaways of the report is that four of the groups combined, they call the exhausted majority. And these are more people on the left and center. So it's 11% they call traditional liberals, 15 passive liberals. The biggest group, 26%, is politically disengaged. They tend not to vote, but they matter. It's a quarter of the country. And then 15% are moderates. So those four groups make up 70-something percent of the country. And so, can Biden do it? Can Biden reunite the country? Well, is he going to drain the venom from the far right and the far left? No, not with talk, not with leadership. Now, there are structural reforms and voting reforms that will reduce their power. And there are social media reforms and journalism reforms that would reduce their extremity and bring them back maybe more to reality. So I'm a big fan of structural changes, but leadership matters and words matter, as we're seeing, you know, Trump's words in context incited the riot. So when you look at the nation this way, you see that we're actually mostly pretty reasonable center, center-left, moderate sorts of people who really did resonate to Biden's appeal, because the exhausted majority is sick and tired of the constant fighting, and they want to see problems get solved. That seems to me to be right. I think there's three different questions that people tend to run together. The first, which was asked far too much over the last four years, is how do we reach the hardcore Trump supporters? And the answer is, you know, the people who are really all in on Trump, you don't. And that's okay. There's actually not that many of them, right? I mean, obviously, the storming of the... Well, it might be as much as 30%. I don't know how to count that, but it's more than the 6%. And that's interesting. Because I was sure, I bet a large amount of money with a friend that Trump could not win the presidency because I thought he had a ceiling. He was appealing to authoritarians. You know, Mm. he could win the Republican nomination, but he could never win the election, I thought. So we have to ask, how did he recruit way beyond the authoritarian predisposed people? So this is a substantial block of the US population, but that block in itself is in fact not enough to win the election. Then there's a second question, which is more about that, which is like, how do you persuade enough people, if you're a Democrat, to make sure that Trump doesn't get reelected, which he didn't, or make sure he doesn't get reelected in 2024 and somebody else or whatever, right? And that's a different kind of question. And that takes persuading a greater number of people, but it doesn't actually take persuading that many people, right? And then there's a third question, which is, how do you tamp down the political temperature and make people more willing to accept Biden as president, less willing to blow up the political system because they're afraid of what might happen and so on, right? And I think that's actually the most important question, the one we talk about least. Yeah. You know, irrespective of whether somebody who voted for Trump in 2016 or 2020 comes to vote for Biden in the future or vote for the Democrats in the future, how do we make them accept our democratic institutions? How do we make them accept Biden as legitimate? How do we make sure that if a future Republican pushes against basic elements of our democracy or of our constitution, they say, hey, like, that's one step too far. I'm not willing to go along there. And on that, it seems to me that this kind of rhetoric might be most impactful. I don't think it'll necessarily persuade millions of people to vote for Biden. I don't think it's going to reach the hardcore supporters of Trump, but it might reach a substantial slice of the United States population that is conservative, that has always voted Republican, that might even be willing to vote Trump for lack of a better option, who would rather have voted for Mitt Romney or whoever else, but, you know, go along with voting for Trump, but that they feel less under threat and that they're less willing to go along with things like that. Now, what are the sacrifices you need to do to get there and how much of a difference will that make? I don't know. But I think that's sort of the stakes in my mind. 
So the second question, the key is to understand the negative partisanship. The key is to understand that, I think it was in the early 2000s, some political scientists say that Americans stopped voting primarily for who they liked and started voting more for who they were against. And I think Karl Rove made the correct calculation for Bush. You know, prior to 2004, I believe the strategy had always been you have to run to the outside, you know, left or right to get the nomination, but then you attack to the center because America is a pretty moderate country and you've got to appeal to the center. But the center has been shrinking and shrinking, especially since the 90s. And Rove calculated in 2004 that we don't win by getting the center, we win by turning out our base, especially evangelicals and especially over gay marriage. So even though I don't think George W. Bush was homophobic, but as a strategic calculation, they went all out against gay marriage and they increased turnout from evangelicals. And so when you bring it up to 2016 and 2020, huge numbers of people who voted for Trump were not voting for him because they loved him. Many of them saw his flaws and his terrible temperament. But they really hated Hillary Clinton, political correctness, the woke left. So people are voting against what they see as a threat to the country or to themselves or to the moral order. And so a key for the Democrats, I think, because we didn't realize this early in the primary, but a key for Biden was telegraphing that he's not terribly PC. He was the sort of more moderate, you know, older generation, safe choice, not particularly woke. So that, I think, is actually a key for the Democrats and for left-leaning parties in other countries as well. The Hidden Tribes study, if you delve into it, it's got all kinds of graphs where they show where these seven tribes are. And there's some really interesting graphs about political correctness. One of the questions was, do you think political correctness is a problem? I think that was the word, something like that. And six of the seven groups, the majority said, yes, political correctness is a problem. And it shows them clustered in two-dimensional space. And the progressive activist group is way on the outside. They say, no, it's not a problem. But in many ways, that group is way away from the other six, which are fairly close together. And so when left-leaning parties embrace the full woke agenda, you know, of course, there are many who will vote for it, but that's a really good way to make a lot of people vote against you, regardless of who your opponent is, even if he's a jerk. Some people will still vote for him because they hate political correctness. So let's talk about some of those issues. I think that is one of the interesting things about American politics at the moment. I mean, when you think of the last four years, I would say that the sort of devoted conservatives in the language of the um, Hidden Trials study were in charge of the Republican Party. To some extent, even the more extreme fringes of the devoted conservatives were in charge of the Republican Party. And I think we've seen that in the end, if you run a moderate candidate against that, that is not capable of winning a majority in the United States, which is one of the reassuring lessons of the 2020 elections. But I think what's also interesting is that a lot of the cultural institutions, from the mainstream press to the universities to increasingly the corporations, uh, are run uh, according to the principles of progressive activists, of sort of 8% of the population. And so I guess I'm interested in how you think that'll play out. Will those institutions be capable of reforming the views of a lot of Americans? Is it possible to change mass attitudes to a lot of those issues if you capture the most culturally influential institutions in society? And will that sort of spread, therefore, to wider swaths of the population? Or do you think the likely result is a sort of mass rebellion against it or, or some other pathway? How does this play out over the next decades? 
Well, maybe we should start by talking about what began happening at universities around 2014, because this phenomenon develops over time, and it begins around 2013, 2014, in universities especially, then it spreads to you know, what is widely known as the Great Awakening around 2015, 2016. Beginning 2017 with Trump and the Charlottesville white supremacists, business begins getting much more in on, on the act since 2017, 2018. And there's been an explosion of employee activism since the Me Too movement and the George Floyd killing. So before I answer the question of how it's going to play out in corporate space, let's go back and I think it'll help listeners to sort of understand what this change is and why it came about. So what's the great awakening? Why is it happening? How do we understand it? Okay, so I'll start with... What began happening on many elite college campuses in 2013-2014, and my friend Greg Lukianoff, I think the first or one of the first to notice this, Greg is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and he's been defending student free speech rights since around 2000. And he's prone to depression. He had a suicidal depression in 2007. After that, he learned cognitive behavioral therapy. You learn the distortions that minds make when they're anxious and depressed. Dichotomous or black and white thinking, overgeneralization, labeling, all these cognitive distortions. Suddenly in 2013, Greg found that students were demanding that speakers or books be banned and they were justifying cracking down on what it was sometimes were free speech rights, justifying them with arguments that seemed to Greg distorted, just like CBT distortions. So you begin to get these things like, well, you know, if this speaker comes to campus, you know, people will die or it's a threat to our safety and speech is violent. And so we started in very quick succession. We started hearing about microaggressions, safe spaces, no platforming, although that goes back a long way in Britain, cultural appropriation. So there's a new set of terms that see campus life as a conflict between the good people and the bad people. Whereas prior to that, you know, most Americans who've been to college have fond memories of their college experience. They remember hanging out with different people and having all kinds of arguments. Companies like Google explicitly modeled their corporate culture on college culture. But college culture began to change very quickly around 2014. So Greg noticed this, came to talk to me as a psychologist. We wrote our article, The Coddling the American Mind of the Atlantic. It came out in August of 2015. And it was right after that, that colleges blew up, beginning at Yale with the memo about Halloween costumes. And then protests spread nationally, dozens or you know, more than 100 campuses. So these ideas really took off. And Greg and I thought, wow, these are ideas that were nurtured on college campuses, and they go back to theories in the humanities and identity studies areas and, you know, Herbert Marcuse and Foucault, and, and there's a lot of attention to that now. So these ideas nurtured in a few campus departments back in the 80s and 90s really exploded across the campus in 2014, 2015. And at the time, after our article came out, a lot of people said, come on, you're just cherry-picking anecdotes from a few undergraduates at Brown or Yale. When these students graduate and join the real world, they're going to have to stop doing this. And we said, well, we don't know. We'll see. They began graduating in 2018, and it turns out that in industries that draw from Ivy League schools, elite college campuses, that they've tended to lean left. So, advertising, media, journalism, the arts, nonprofits, and tech. In these fields, where there's always been a left lean in general, and they recruit from these 
campuses beginning in 2018, all these ideas seem to spread. So you get them moving into the corporate world, especially since about 2018, a lot more employee activism. And so that's where we are there. Now, the other interesting piece of the story is that, and we didn't know this when we were writing our article or our book, is what's called the Great Awakening. And that is the finding I think Zach Goldberg was the first to really draw this to people's attention. If you look at the general social survey or other national surveys, he found that suddenly around 2015, white people on the left move way to the left on issues of race and immigration. And they're substantially to the left of black Democrats. So what happened to white people around then? And that's called the Great Awakening, and it spread rapidly through you know, newsrooms and left-leaning circles, a change in the politics or discourse of white people on the left. So one of the interesting things about the sort of perspective of cognitive behavioral therapy and so on, I take it, is that you think that all of the lessons of CBT are being ignored when you talk about some of these issues, right? So for example, you know, one of the debates that now seems slightly quaint, but that was very live in 2015, 2016, was about trigger warnings, where the idea was that if any piece of literature included a depiction of a sexual assault or something like that, you should warn students beforehand. And then that quickly became generalized. And if, you know, a book didn't live up to our standards of racial tolerance or other forms of tolerance, then you needed a trigger warning that would allow students to leave the room if that might traumatize them before they read Otello by Shakespeare, say, right? Why do you think that that sort of ignores the lessons of cognitive behavioral therapy and, and actually sets us up for greater problems? Right. So first, there's been a long trend towards psychologizing and pathologizing. What was that book? The Triumph of the Therapeutic, you know, back, I forget what decade, 60s, 70s, 8, whenever it was. So there's been a kind of a long march of psychology into other fields. But here, it's kind of being weaponized for a political struggle. So, you know, the most generous reading of it is that it, it comes out of online support groups in the 90s, where there'd be the support groups for rape survivors. And if somebody was about to tell their story, they would say trigger warning, you know, graphic content here. So that's a closed community of trauma survivors. That's, as I understand, it, that's where the term originated. But then it comes out to be not just literature or film that would have horrible violence. You know, I do understand if you're going to see a beheading or something like that, it does make some sense to warn people, like warning, you know, very graphic violence coming. But it's clearly recruited into the culture war because it's also offensive ideas. Warning, you know, misogyny and classism and, you know, are going to be shown here. And these things are so terrible that they are harmful to people, even if you're reading. I mean, the fact that, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird is now being taken away from curricula, something which is so powerfully anti-racist, uh, but because it contains words that are offensive now, uh, that are offensive, the idea is that kids are better off not even encountering it. And, and by the way, I mean, but this to me seems like a sanctity infusion, right, of the most classic kind, which is to say that the odd erasure, a word that some of the work love, of a distinction between the depiction of a racist person or the use of a racist word and the work of art being racist. If you use the N-word in a novel about deeply racist people in the American South in the 1950s and 1960s, and it's very, very clear that the sympathy of the author and of the narrator and of a protagonist are with the people who oppose the people using those terms, 
But just the fact that it depicts somebody using those terms suddenly makes the moral status of a work as a whole problematic. And that is just a very, I mean, I think the only way to make sense of that is with sanctity thinking, I think, right? But I think there's another way. It seems to have some similarities to sanctity, but I think there's a better way to understand it, which is if you look at the prestige economy that people are in and you look at the game they're playing. So being a professor at universities, it feels very incoherent these days because the game that we think we're playing, the game that I thought we were always playing is the let's find truth game. And the way it works is, I do research, I put something out there, and then other people say, no, you're wrong on this point. And then we debate and it's got rules of engagement. And if we all play the game and then we get to the truth, that's the game we're playing as researchers. And we play an analogous game with our students in this Socratic method of bringing them to understand truth, sometimes by showing opposing arguments, sometimes by eliciting emotions. So if that's the game we're playing, then of course you wouldn't ban To Kill a Mockingbird. You assign it, you talk about it. But beginning in 2014, 2015, the progressive activist subgroup, which they were always there and they were always in certain majors, but now they are bringing their game to everywhere. And their game is fighting racism, fascism, sexism, bigotry. That's their game. And if they're in your class and you're playing, it's like I'm playing tennis and I serve the ball, I expect to hit it back, but they're playing tackle football and their goal is to tackle me. It's incoherent. And you get points in their game. You get points for showing that you're even further out in condemning racism than, than anyone else. So everyone's striving for prestige, and your know, professors want it from publications or public appearances, and students want it from either looking good to the professor or nowadays, and we should get to social media before we run out of time, Gen Z has grown up totally linked to each other on social media. That influences the game they're playing. And the game they're playing is get more likes. Don't say anything that's going to get you slammed or piled on. And so you can always gain points by calling people racist or calling out practices as racist or finding racism where other people don't see it. So I don't think it's necessarily sanctity and purity. I think it's a runaway economy of prestige that the social media generation is locked into, especially the progressive activists. And when we bow to their game, we say, okay, those are the new rules. We give up our telos. We give up the value of a university. And that presumably helps to explain uh, sort of virtual mobs, for example, right? I mean, when you get people sort of beating up on a tweet because somebody say, use the word lame. Oh, that's lame. It's like, oh, actually, that's ableist. And, you know, you're a terrible person for having used that. Tell us how those mechanisms create a very strange outcome, which is that nobody has an incentive, I suppose. Nobody can gain prestige by defending the person and saying, oh, it's, you know, innocent. And why are we making a big deal of it? Whereas a lot of people can gain prestige and gain points by beating up on that person. How does that help to explain what Twitter and Facebook and all of that sort of call-out culture looks like. Well, that's right. So Molly Crockett at Yale has a great short article on virtual outrage or digital outrage showing how face-to-face -face interactions, there's a certain social psychology, but when you're interacting just over Twitter or Facebook, it's very different and compassion goes down, virtue signaling goes up. So we are suddenly, you know, I mean, we have millions of years of evolution for communication and group dynamics, and we suddenly have a massive scrambling of what the groups are. And we are tied into all these people that we don't know and we'll never see. And those can often make us quite uncivil, savage, even to people that we will see. So this new prestige economy, which can bring 
praise or punishment so quickly. And I think many of us have experienced this. You put something up on Twitter and you think you're very clever about it. And so, you know, I'll check, you know, five minutes later, you know, how's it doing? So even though in the long run, you actually do get prestige by standing up for people, in the long run, people who've done that, and you know, you're an example, I mean, you speak up for both sides, you are consistent. In the long run, you actually do get prestige for showing some spine and whether or not that's helped me i have my doubts about perhaps that's true but you know well we'll just we'll discuss it over a beer sometime yeah okay okay but in the short run we are animals who are responsive to reward and punishment this is where actually studying behaviorism you know what are the effects of quick rewards and punishment given that we're behaviorist creatures boy does social media guide people's behavior based on short-term rewards and punishments. And the rewards are nice. You get something going viral, you get prestige, but the punishments are horrible. And I've spoken to a lot of people who've been through this and a lot of them need Xanax to sleep at night and they lose their friends. And so, you know, suddenly we've taken the social dynamics of a liberal democracy that has this rough and tumble and idea of a marketplace of ideas, and we've perverted the marketplace. I mean, imagine saying, you know, you have a functioning marketplace and then you have a few people who say, you know what? If anyone tries to buy flour, I will kill them. Well, you know, the price of flour is suddenly going to go down. So if you have intimidation, and this is something I care a lot about, universities are a special place that facilitate a special kind of interaction, challenge, learning, uh, openness to ideas. And when you knock down the walls of the university and you make everything the public square and the social media square, we lose our ability to do what we've traditionally done. We're just an extension of the social media public square. This is, I think, where my instincts about how this will all play out at cross-purposes, and I'd love you to, to weigh in on them. So on the one hand, when I look around history and when I look around different societies, I find it very, very difficult for elites to inculcate a set of beliefs in a larger part of the population, even when I strongly sympathize with the views of the elites. That tends not to happen. I mean, in Germany, I find it very interesting that there is a kind of consensus that the country has reached about its treatment of the past and about the Holocaust being the worst crime in German history, perhaps in human history. But at the same time, when you ask people today, do you want to keep engaging with the crimes of the Holocaust or do you want for us to draw a kind of finish line beneath, underneath it and sort of shut up about it and be done with it, two-thirds of the German population say, I want to be done with it. I don't want to talk and think about it that much, despite a really quite far-reaching elite consensus in the other direction. I think that's very interesting, and it makes me very skeptical that something like the Great Awakening, for all of its strengths as well as weaknesses, will ever be generalized. At the same time, some of the incentive structure you talk about will likely remain. Some of the fact that, you know, if 8% of the population are progressive activists and a substantial portion of them is willing to punish you for using a term like lame or are willing to punish you for anything that's perceived as, you know, violating the rules of their game, the ever-changing rules that are hard to keep up with. Exactly. Then the rational thing for most people to do is to not to talk very much about politics and to be extra, extra careful and nervous if you're doing anything that might somehow fall foul of those ever-changing rules that you haven't entirely understood because you're not spending all of your time online or on a college campus or thinking about politics. And so that would seem to suggest that perhaps the small group can actually keep and gain even more power and keep control of discourse for a long time. So... How do you think those two different forces will shape 
up against each other and, and other other forces that are more important that I haven't talked about. Yeah, yeah. So very few institutions are true democracies in which we survey, you know, what the majority of people want, and then we do what they want. The social dynamics are much more complicated. And so within a university, within a tech company like Google, within an advertising firm, the staff of a museum, whatever it is. So if people lean left, and a lot of the same dynamics would happen if you had a uniformly right-leaning organization, you know, maybe the police, some parts of the military, but our leading cultural organizations tend to be on the left and they tend to be increasingly homogeneous on the left. So if that's the case, a small number of people can intimidate a very large number of people. And you get a lot of what Timur Koran calls preference falsification. It's a really useful term. Listen to my podcast episode with Timur on this question and he'll explain it all beautifully. Oh, I missed that. Okay, I'll do that. And listeners, go do that. But whenever you have a situation in which large numbers of people are professing something publicly, but privately they have different views, then a small number can keep people intimidated. But as soon as there's an alternative, everyone's going to go for it if they perceive that as being safe. And so on a lot of the woke stuff, there are a lot of people who realize, you know what, the woke stuff violates a lot of our moral values, the woke approach to diversity and inclusion, you know, evidence on, you know, Robin DiAngelo and uh, Ibram Kendi and those, I mean, not that they're, I don't know about evidence on them specifically, but the evidence that diversity training doesn't work or backfires. A lot of people know this, but until there's an alternative, they're not going to just say, you know, we're not going to do that. And one thing that's interesting to me is there are a lot of African-American diversity officers or people in the diversity industry who know that that woke approach doesn't work or backfires, and they're looking for alternatives. Now, white people in that space are more hemmed in. It's harder for them to say, forget if this doesn't work. They seem to have more need to display, or maybe they're more true believers. I don't know. But I think there are a lot of people who are trying to come up with approaches that acknowledge the existence of structural racism, that acknowledge that there are systemic factors. You know, explicit racism has plummeted in the last 50 years, but there are systemic issues that need to be addressed. So if someone can come up with an approach that uses the principles of social psychology and that calls people in, it doesn't shame people, it doesn't do shame and blame, then I think we could see a very rapid turn because most people, and again, the Hidden Tribe study is very clear on this, most people really dislike that stuff, but in a left-leaning organization, they keep quiet about it. So I'm hopeful that at some point in the next couple of years, we will see a kind of, you know, like the way we had the, you know, the fall of the Iron Curtain, like those countries change very quickly because most people hated the existing system. And from what I hear, like in journalism, I talk to a lot of journalists, they hate it. They hate the wokeness of the young editors, the young people in the editorial office. And a lot of them are very courageous and really speaking up about this. So I think that something will give, something will change in the next few years. Jonathan Hyatt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yasha, always a pleasure to talk with you and to be part of the persuasion community. Well, and this is only the beginning. I feel like I have so many more questions. We'll have to have you back on for a second episode at some point. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner, 
for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.